0: Hello and welcome to NIXA Talk, the podcast for connecting and supporting the people of the asset management industry. I'm NIXA's Jeff Lamoureux, and today's episode is Sales and Asset Forecasting, Modeling in an Evolving Global Economy. It's a recording of a recent NIXA webinar sponsored by Delta Data, in which three experts take a deep dive into the challenges and opportunities related to market modeling programs. Now here's the panel's moderator. Delta Data's Jason Davenport.
1: I'm VP of sales here at Delta Data and have been working in the financial technology space for about 20 years. During the majority of that time, I have worked in product strategy and client services, helping firms in their data initiatives. Recently, I've moved over into our sales organization where I work with asset management firms to show them how our software at Delta Data can help them become more efficient in their oversight activities. I'm also going to now turn it over to Tyler Whitfield, our other panelists, for some quick introductions on their end. Tyler.
2: Hi, I'm Tyler Clorty. I'm a senior manager with uh, KC Quirk by Deloitte. Um, So we do strategy consulting within the investment management space. I also run our Knowledge Center, which does a lot of our primary research activities, talking to asset managers across the landscape, as well as uh, intermediaries and key
1: buyers. Great. Thanks, Tyler. Tyler. Uh,
3: I'm Whitfield AC. I'm CEO of Delta Data. Uh, I've been in this industry about uh, 25 years. Uh, I've spent time at both large broker-dealers and uh, time at asset managers. Uh, very excited today to talk about forecasting, which is, a, from a technology standpoint, a nascent uh, capability in the industry. But it's it's been around forever. Uh, all of us try and forecast the future Uh, based on assumptions about our business whether you're running a technology company or an asset management business so really interested today to hear tyler's insights and to have a good discussion on this topic
1: great thanks whitfield um yeah just to lay some of the groundwork really for the next hour or so we're going to give a brief overview of the current state of our asset management industry And from there we'll take a look at the evolution of economic modeling and the challenges that are presented during periods of global unrest we'll then move on to some of the ways to overcome these challenges talking through some of the best practices that we've heard from our asset management clients here at delta data so with that i'll turn it over to tyler and he can you know kick us off with really talking through the industry today in regards to the market environment and where we are
2: thanks yeah happy to jump in um let's so as everyone is intimately aware right this has been a a pretty unique year for the industry um and and i think it's created a lot of volatility in both the kind of market levels the underlying financials of asset management firms as well as the way that investors are reacting um so i think that kind of ties in pretty tightly with you know how do you How do you think about forecasting in this environment becomes pretty challenging? Um, Just to give a pulse of where we are, right? Um, As the year ended in in 2019, um, the industry is at a a pretty great all-time high, right? If you're thinking about, um, you know, margins have been pressured by, you know, fee compression overall and and some move towards passive, but overall still really robustly profitable organizations. Uh, AUM has been riding high in terms of just continued capital market appreciation. Revenues were up, and and although you know managers' cost structures had been increasing, a lot of that was kind of due to increased investments in technology and often risk and compliance as well. So um, overall, you know, coming into the year, I think firms were feeling pretty pretty strong and stable about their their overall financial footprint. Um, you know, fast forward to March, you had a, a pretty drastic drawdown in the levels of the market, which which pulled down. Um, AUM and associated revenues pretty starkly, right? So you, you saw a 12% drop just in Q1. Um, and this this hit margins really aggressively. Um, and firms tried to react really quickly uh, with the information that they had to be able to make moves to control the bottom line. So focusing on cost, right? So reducing um, T&E expenses, reducing market data expenses, reducing things that ideally didn't require cutting. Um, cutting headcount, uh, as most firms were trying to avoid that during the, the pandemic period. Um, through Q2, Q3, right, I think we've seen a pretty amazing V-shaped bounce back, which I don't think anyone was really anticipating. Um, so the speed of the recovery of at least the, the levels of the capital markets have been surprising and started to buoy some of the financials of of asset management firms. But I think there still is the view from from the C-suite that, you know, there is tremendous potential for volatility in this market, both on the upside and the downside. Um, so trying to project, you know, what kind of capital expenditures do you want to make? Um, what type of investments are you going to make to reposition the firm? Um, it's it's a difficult time to, to make some of these big decisions. And, and at the same time, um, there's a lot of kind of really substantive choices that these executives need to make. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the second page. Um, on the investor side, right? There's um, there's been a couple interesting factors, right? So if you talk to um, many chief investment officers coming in and previous to the market crisis, I think there was, you know, some sentiment that, you know, in the next market crisis, active management will be validated, and that investors would kind of return to actively managed products. And in what you saw, at least through Q1 and Q2, is Structurally, things really did not change. So investors flew to safety and pulled a lot of money into money markets in Q1, uh, but largely the dispersion as they returned into the market between active and passive was kind of the same as it was before. Um, in active equity, it was largely on the passives, or on equity, it was largely passive exposure. In fixed income, it's still a little bit of a split with active um, pushing ahead. Um, on the... On the kind of channelization side, it was somewhat interesting because in, you know, if you looked at previous financial crises like 2008, you saw retail investors get out of the market and stay out of the market. Um, And in this particular crisis, you saw them kind of move quickly to the sidelines, but come back in quite aggressively early. Um, So particularly as firms think about their channel mix, their product mix, thinking about how to project what that forward future is going to look like in terms of. You know asset mix shift, um, overall fee yields across their product set. Obviously, that has kind of wide ranging waterfall implications for their overall financial health as well. Whitfield, not sure if you'd add anything uh, in terms of the overall yeah. uh, flow and financials picture.
3: Well, I think that these are incredibly insightful observations. I think it was really interesting while we were prepping for this call to look at the numbers. I think we all kind of had a feeling On these macro numbers, uh, but you know, directional. It's it's great to see these things in black and white because it you realize the the stark reality of getting to plus you know plus seven percent in a matter of months. uh, It's a bit of a a whiplash more than a V. Um, The the question is, I would pose for those on the call who who are, and this is a, a call about forecasting, uh, pretty much every shop that we have talked to, and we have about 25-ish asset managers as clients, um, everybody does the the job of forecasting. Um, I think an interesting question which we we can't do live polls, is how many of them reforecasted in in early April and then reforecasted again in July. Because as you pointed out, I don't think anybody was really expecting this roller coaster ride. Um I, I think we all knew when uh when the Swan event happened it was heading down. But uh what the recovery could or even would look like, I think in March there was a question of would. Uh I was intrigued by how would forecasting fit into this? How would we use it? And um you know, to your point, there, there are waterfall effects off of these large movements. If this happens, then that happens. If that happens, then, you know, so on and so on. Um, and when I, when I try to get my arms around it, I, I think if you, if you simplify what the asset management, um, the, the powers that be that are trying to run an asset management institution are trying to do here, is say, how do we make informed decisions proactively and then wait for the market to determine which decisions we make? And I'll unpack that just a bit. Um, you're right. Everybody was uh, able to avoid layoffs, but I'm guessing more than 90% of them had some floor trigger that said, if the market got here or stayed at this level for X number a month, we're going to make this move. And then if it further... You know, does not recover, then we're going to do another move. Those types of predicated decisions uh, are in today's modern company are almost always predetermined. Um, So the forecasting is important to allow the executives to say, hey, here's the possible path we take. And if the market does have a V shaped return, which I think people would have thought was improbable in the first week of April. Um, you can plan for it. And if it has a nine-month flat line at 35% down on assets, uh, you, you know what the impact to your company is, and you understand what is the magnitude of hard line cost cuts you need to make. So, yeah, just I was really appreciative that you brought these numbers to the table because it helps us move beyond a theoretical discussion and into uh, a numbers-based quantifiable discussion and then this whole conversation that you you know the three of us are having today is around okay if you have the numbers what does your forecasting program look like to allow the key decision makers to to map out the potential outcomes and plug in the effective changes they need to make to their business and then let the numbers do the decision making from that point on rather than being on their heels reactive and kind of living in the moment which I personally don't think the best decision-making comes from.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I think one of the other elements that, that has compounded um, this these trends that you see, especially when you start to compare it against previous market crises, is that um, I think the the common playbook by many firms was, Hey, there's a pretty huge buffer in our business because we've got a lot of variable compensation and we can take that up and we can take that down during periods of market volatility. I think what we've seen over time as well is the cost mix of asset management firms has shifted. So the big investments that firms are making into data, into technology, into fixed cost elements um, are starting to reduce the size of that buffer. Um, in which firms could kind of manage through some of these elements by just um, ratcheting up incentive compensation up and down. So I think that that is another kind of compounding effect that we see uh, that firms are facing now that they might not have faced in the past.
3: Yes, Tyler, I think, I think you're, you're, you're really getting into the details around what a forecasting program is, is trying to suss out. So in, in our understanding of this industry, the number one cost is people. Um, And to your point you just made, you have a a fixed cost of people, and then you have a variable performance-based and uh, either role performance-based or firm performance-based component that uh, creates a variable number on top of your fixed personnel cost. The second biggest expense is your distribution expense. Um, The distribution expense is largely... AUM-based, but we see many instances of um, fixed costs, but not to the extent of if you looked at like personnel costs, where the fixed cost is a much bigger chunk of the overall expense. And then, you know, another interesting thing that's been impacted uh, over the last six months is real estate. Real estate comes in uh, at the third third highest expense. In in our understanding, and there's, you know, I'll be honest, three, four, and five real estate infrastructure, that sort of stuff, um, software expenses, they're all a distant third, fourth, and fifth to the big ones, which are FTEs and distribution expense. But uh, to your point, a good forecasting program is able to rapidly take input. And define what's fixed and what's variable, and based on those inputs, tell you what the magnitude of the variable is, so that you know how big that buffer is in any business scenario going forward. And that business scenario, um, that that buffer is the thing that's hard to kind of calculate in your mind. I think most of the folks who, who are making decisions in asset management complexes can do the back of the cocktail napkin and say, about thirty percent of our comps variable. So if the industry is really just terrible. You know we're going to drop from I'm just throwing a number out there from 100 million to 70 million in in comps this year, but they couldn't tell you is it 26 million or is it 30 38 million? And if the market comes back by three percent, then what? Uh, that's where it starts to to get a little gray. And a good forecasting problem uh, program can not only project out scenarios, but it can answer those questions. What if we we see a three month bounce back to near pre-COVID levels. Well, uh, a good forecasting program should turn that around not in those three months, but in a matter of, you know, minutes, if not days at the worst, to say this is what the variable buffer looks like if that happens. because um, then they can look at how much cash they're sitting on and say, all right, can we can we absorb that or not?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Hey with
1: hey with so that's a it's a good point and you know, as we've heard from some of our clients, can you talk through why they're now pushing, or what kind of the evolution of forecasting engines, and what they're doing today, or you know how things have worked, and the reason they can't turn those around in a couple of minutes, and kind of where we're seeing them go, and what they're asking for as far as software. are you there? Sorry.
3: Yeah. Uh, so, Tyler, I, you know, I, I do want to include you in this question. Tyler, you know, Casey Quirk's in a lot of shops out there. You know, mm-hmm. Where did the forecasting function originate? I, you know, can you talk through where where this started and, and what its use was? And then I'll talk a bit about how our shops are that, that are using our tools are evolving it into the, the latest use cases.
2: Yeah, so I would say predominantly the uh the forecasting functioning originated within the you know the CFO and finance vertical, right? So it's trying to provide management guidance upward on kind of various scenarios. Um I'd say over time we've seen it start to um balkanize to some extent, right? Where where certain uh functional units are trying to create better um Better insights on their their spending on potential revenue and inflows, such as kind of you know more analytics within the distribution function, um, kind of greater um, greater details up as you look at kind of various regional geographies, and if they own separate P and Ls as well. Um, so I'd say it's it's moved kind of throughout the firm as as you know there's been more onus on kind of you know, investment and more you know views as to how do you, how are you driving ROI. Uh, and what are kind of the more granular focus on the, the cost that we're spending across these various functions. Um, and a lot of that has been solved by adding bodies, right, by throwing people at the problem. Um, I think there's been the view of trying to add kind of data and systems. Um, what we've seen, at least from our perspective, is that uh, you know firms bump into a couple problems, um, one just being you know siloed data, uh, lack of kind of data quality, And then, um, you know, just the ability to put kind of the right uh, analytical tools around them to be able to speed the analysis uh, and and have all the inputs that they need in order to create uh, the type of kind of, you know, just in time or as close to real time analysis as possible. But we'd be interested to see if that's kind of relatively consistent with what what you're seeing out there and if firms are making uh, uh, kind of moves to leapfrog the competition there
3: yeah so that's that's that was our understanding of the history uh that had our, our clients who have signed on to this uh have kind of walked us through they they took similar journeys to this point and to answer directly the question from Jason, most of the asset management shops that we get a look at their process um there is a core set of spreadsheets that have from some fairly significant data gathering activities that go into the preparation of the spreadsheet. And then there are uh, a series of interactions with key uh, groups to program the spreadsheets with information that would influence a single one model. And that model is usually coming from the economist or chief economist um, or it's a uh, average of two or three uh, of their economic expectations. Um, this whole uh, structure is supported by the finance group, the structure, the business process of collecting the data, uh, talking to the different influential groups like sales, um, and then working with the ops team that does to help understand the distribution expenses. And then lastly, uh, a lot of custom macros in the spreadsheet spit out a fairly detailed flow forecast going forward. Um, And interestingly, in in the two that I've I've spent personal time with, uh, there's quantitative uh, individuals who, who have quant in their business title at the shop doing the work. Um, I I literally couldn't describe a a more difficult thing to execute in today's environment with any higher value people than high-end finance, quant people, and working with your sales team one-off in spreadsheets. It's a recipe for expense, for sure. It it appears uh, that all the shops we're working with, they are able to do it and are able to do it very accurately. Um, But what we do see is that if we ask why aren't there three models um, they usually just say well we haven't been asked Um, so if you were asked would you be able to produce it and the answer is likely not there's just too much time um, required and without a structured workflow to gather the input um, and then apply those inputs to multiple models uh, there's just at every point there's more complexity so as, as we looked at what is the 24 month roadmap that we want to evolve into as a partner with our asset managers, you know, regardless of the software, you want to take that business process and be able to execute it on a moment's notice with different variables and have a firm conviction that the output is going to be consistent because if it's not consistent, you can't make decisions off of it. So um, where we're, where we are working Today, uh, and, and really, it's, yes, software comes into play, it's like any other business process that we've tried to scale and get better at uh, with our clients, and that is um, make it streamlined and repeatable to where you have confidence in the output. And if you streamline it and automate it enough, you can run it whenever you want with little additional costs. So whereby today I don't think the business, knowing what goes into the process, would ask on April 7th, could you model out these two other scenarios? We're trying to get our clients to a point whereby the answer is not, hey, can you? They're sending to them updated scenarios because the cost of running the next scenario is quite low. I mean, if you think about when we make investment decisions Investment decisions inside of a portfolio, a a modern portfolio management program, that you're literally running Monte Carlo analysis on hundreds of scenarios, trying to figure out what's the most likely outcome for uh, a set of investments. So, um, why we don't apply that same logic to what's the likely outcome uh, to the overall projected forecast, which so many decisions are being made on, I, I think it's It is a bit of an operational and technical limitation that needs to be removed and then let the business determine, the the decision makers determine how many models do they want to look at um, and what inferences does the technology provide for them. It's the same set of decisions at the end of the day, and it's definitely not a crystal ball, Uh, but you would think that we would be supplying the business decision makers with a wealth of information um, that is reforecasted at any given moment for pretty much any given reason. But I think today the cost, the personnel cost, the time to take uh, and get it right, it takes a while to get it right. Um, it, it's just too high a bar to be doing this on a, you know, daily or weekly basis. The backside question of that is why in the world would you do it daily or weekly? Well, I think we just lived through the why. The market moved literally you know, minus 35 plus five, it's a 40-point swing in the NASDAQ. That's that's just crazy. And I mean, I, I, that's crazy. And I worked at Lehman Brothers. I've seen crazy. Um, that's that's even crazier. I, I personally think that the uh, volatility we're seeing today is not going away. And that volatility, as it persists in the environment that we have to make decisions in, forecasting, uh, becomes more important that the forecast you're operating off of is the very latest forecast based on the very latest information that they have.
2: Yeah. And Whitfield, this the, the slide that is, is showing right now also kind of hammers home that point, right? You mentioned yeah. the the volatility in financials. So I think there's the you know how do we how do we keep a consistent cash flow margin and, and making sure we're you know managing through this volatility. But I think and you know, when we've gone out and had a lot of conversations with um, with CEOs and other executives, right? There, there's some pretty substantive investments firms need to make in order to retool their businesses to be successful over the next five to ten years, and and thinking about how are these going to be funded, when is the right time to invest in them, um, and and how big of a bet can you make is going to be obviously dependent on a lot of those factors that Whitfield mentioned, um, you know. I think there's some big questions around, right? If this is the kind of working operating model, what additional technology, what real estate can I get rid of? How do I kind of reinvent my talent model? Um, there's a lot around just kind of creating a more seamless um, operating model. Um, you know, there's there's investments that need to be made as you think about, right? How do you sell to new clients in this very digital-only environment? What does the new client experience look like? Um, so substantive investments there. Um, The active management engine, right? We talked about continued uh, deterioration towards passive and, you know, big investments like, you know, private markets, uh, ESG, and, and, you know, using quantum mental capabilities, right? These are all, all chunky decisions. Um, Some firms are even thinking about, you know, do I want to reevaluate my global or my view towards globalization? So a lot of firms, you know, aspire to be global managers, but you know, other geographies have not proved to be as profitable or as large of a source of growth as their home markets. So there's questions as to, do I wanna double down and really grow globally or do I wanna to retrench towards my uh, a smaller set of markets where I feel like I can turn the needle? Um, and clearly we're seeing M&A, right? With the, uh, the recent transaction between Eaton Vance and Morgan Stanley, right? M&A is clearly back on the table um, and making those kind of really large um, transformational decisions for firms, clearly you need to rely on having good good data at the right time quickly um, to be able to kind of chart the future of where your firms are are headed
3: yeah Tyler uh, I agree these are the big chunky things and and a couple of things you you brought up at the the start of this call are are key to understand how the tentacles of flow and expenses fit in. You had mentioned uh, uh, some of the costs are variable, but many of the costs are fixed. And when you start talking about what is your cash flow and what is your cash flow in an extended negative environment uh, or positive environment, um, if you have bid off some of these larger technology projects, uh, they have to be funded. And um, if, if you're forecasting engine whether it's a manual engine or a technical engine uh, is able to take into account some of these large known blocks of commitment. It helps you understand what your free cash flow really is, because unless you unless you model all of the big components in, again, um, you don't get the full picture. And eventually the spreadsheet just can't contain all the components. The other thing I wanted to point out was M&A. When when we Delta data look at M&A, nimble comes to mind. Uh, Frenetic pace comes to mind. Usually when the right opportunity comes along for us to go buy somebody, we have about two weeks to figure out what's the number we'll pay and what are the likely... uh, Synergies, if you will, uh, that come out of the deal. Having a tool that can evaluate the top ten agreements of a target acquirer and see if there's material improvement in the distribution expense and project the combined book of business across an optimized set of fees is absolutely critical to get M and A right. Winning an M and A is all about finding the answers that allow you to pay what you're comfortable with but that is a bigger number than your competitor if you have more intel about where you're actually going to find real synergies than your competitor you will likely win more m a um event so with distribution expense being the second largest expense in an asset manager it is critical that in an m a session You've got an idea of whether they're sitting on key relationships that have older, perhaps, uh, or more advantageous agreements on selling. Um, just paying five to ten bips difference in one of the big broker-dealer channels could be millions of dollars of EBITDA go forward. Um, so having a tool that can take those inputs, combine the two books of business, and output the likely uh, savings, if you will, on an optimized set of agreements is is a core capability that these firms should have so that they win uh, by putting a larger number that has real synergies backing that, re- that larger number.
1: And that also brings in a, another good point. Um, you know, as we talk about different groups, technology, sales, distribution, operations, there's a lot of different, you know, call centers involved in in actually producing a forecast. How have we seen groups manage that as far as, especially in a working from home environment, how are people giving their input to these forecasting tools? and, And does that actually increase the need for a pushed industry solution for a better forecasting engine?
3: Hey Tyler, why don't you comment on, you know, Casey Quirk's view of which processes have been fine transitioning into the dislocated environment and which problem, which is, have run into stumbling blocks? I think laying that baseline is probably the best way to tackle that question.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, so I think um, if you ask about the feedback from from many firms, uh, people were shockingly positive about their shift into remote working environments. Um, I think there, you know, there was some kind of upgrading and collaboration and technology systems that was required, but it was kind of worked better than many expected. I think the largest concerns that have been voiced by many firms are, one, around the how do you, you know, how do you sell the new clients, right? So maintaining existing client relationships has been, uh, in some senses, even, you know, as people have been able to kind of you know, help and navigate people through this challenging environment. But I think you know identifying and selling to new clients has been a pain point. And also thinking about how do you onboard new talent and train them and, and especially younger talent um, is, is definitely been a pain point. As it relates to data moving around the organization, um, this has been a pain point before the COVID crisis. And I, I don't see it that you know, working remotely really helped it, but I didn't see that it would necessarily really create a huge impediment either. It's just kind of in many situations was somewhat of a broken process to begin with. Um, we've seen a, a stark increase in firms hiring chief data officers to try to get data governance and data quality improved and data sharing around the firm, um, more of a you know, systematized process. Um, and you've also seen big investments right one of the biggest investments on the tech side is moving towards a you know a cloud environment to start to move some of that data into a more broadly accessible environment um so i think you know there's there's definitely action on the the data front but you know as it relates to working from home and shifting into the covid environment you know the data uh wasn't necessarily the the largest pain point brought up
3: so you know interestingly we we uh we we just moved last year, our head of product to uh, head of data and and, uh, promoted somebody to head of product. So I think a lot of firms are moving towards uh, a keen focus on data. And I would agree. Uh, This was a manual process was uh, not a good thing uh, within the four walls of the firm. And it has continued to be uh, less than optimal. But, uh, you know, I I would say to be fair, it hasn't really degraded. Uh, But I I would add that what what we've seen is a lot of training of additional personnel. I feel that people are wearing a few more hats and that uh, folks who are touching our systems are a little more broad. We have more uh, people backing each other up and we're doing more training. The point being is the... Business processes supported by technology, whether we're talking about forecasting or trade execution, um, the ones that are supported by technology, whereby a lot of the knowledge and the workflow of what's next is built into the platform allows for a a bit of scalability with the existing workforce uh, by allowing more folks to support multiple uh, hats and allows for a little more flexibility of personnel. So as we talk about, you know, what are, you know, back to your first observation, margins were down last year. They're going to be down again this year, even though we we seem to have been as a industry uh, talking about our companies somewhat resilient to uh, coming back from this COVID uh, issue. Not talking about the health side, just talking about the the bottom line of the business that unfortunately uh, did not affect sea compression, and it didn't affect outflows from active, which I'm sure many of the, the, uh, listeners on this webinar today, uh, are feeling the effects of those. So, as, as we still get to, uh, not take a break from those pressures, we start thinking about how do we better leverage our workforce we have, um, and how do we distribute, uh, the work to be done across a smaller group of people. Um, That gives us more flexibility and headcount. And I think also it allows us to be slightly more resilient, but I I would agree with you. I don't think that the manual processes have absolutely blown up in a dislocated environment. They just haven't, for sure, haven't improved.
1: Great, thanks for that. We we do have one question out here. Can you further outline the core capabilities needed for a successful M&A activity? Um, Tyler, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that one first.
2: Yeah, look, so I think um, it's pretty wide ranging. I'd say at least where our group has been involved is primarily the the diligence of the investment engine, the forward flows, right? I think what, what often happens is you get a banker who will come in and pitch the idea and the projections are quite rosy. Uh, so, you know, conducting the diligence both on the, you know, the efficacy of those those flow projections uh, to see, you know, how how much growth, how much revenue is is actually kind of stable in and can be validated versus how much is aspirational in some of those initial projections. Kicking the tires there is important. Uh, clearly, the you know this is a talent business, right? So, you're when you buy something, you don't buy much aside from the people. So, understanding the You know understanding those individuals taking you know the opportunity to have discovery understanding the retention um type of program that might be put in place in order to retain those people and how that's going to be integrated into uh your broader organization is definitely critically important as well um on the operational side right there's there's a number of factors as you look through just the um the the systems the tax tax records i think that's that's where typically I've had less experience, but obviously all of those elements are, are quite critical when you think about dotting all the I's and crossing the T's before making an effective bid. Uh, but at least as it relates to some of the valuation um, elements, I think, and especially as it overlaps with the forecasting, I think being able to have a good sense of, you know, how much should, and how reasonably and in what degree of confidence you can forecast the, the future asset revenue flows and, and that type of picture into the future, in addition to the existing cost structure and some of those cost synergies, uh, is where you can tighten up that uh, that potential um, bid price that you can put together.
3: You know, I'm completely shocked to hear that there's rosy projections and pitch decks in the asset management world. I thought that was
2: just tech- <laughs> You'd never thing, believe but, it. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> yeah.
3: So uh yeah, so I would I would agree with all those that she said and, and just from my personal experience, um, I was on the team that uh worked to integrate Newberger into Lehman. And um clearly at that age, I mean, if y'all kind of date me in your mind, you're like, All right, you weren't a decision maker there, and I'm not at all claiming to be, but I was along for the ride in some very small meetings where some really interesting uh values whether they were realized values or realized that there weren't a value there, uh, kind of were resolved. And I, it is a people acquisition, period. Um, you, you're buying a bunch of asset managers and uh, their client base that's tied to their ability to make money in the market. So uh, first and foremost, as a technologist, I don't want to say, oh, forecasting flows and understanding your dealer agreement is the most important thing uh, to try and sell software. It's a people thing. It's a people acquisition. And having those people committed to the go forward company is probably the single most important thing based on my own experience uh, working with Neuberger uh, and Lehman. But um, behind that, uh, where you lo- you leave the qualitative zone and you get into the quantitative zone of M&A, um, in my opinion, the, the most important thing, and, and by the way, my opinion is coming from trying to do M&A uh, successfully from my own executive team is understanding how that business is structured from a flow and an expense um, perspective and then modeling that into your world and trying to forecast correctly the go-forward pro forma business. And the reality is is how fast you can do that and how accurately you can do that will drive conviction of the person or persons who are putting a number bid out there to try and win um if you are good you are fast and accurate um, you will consistently put larger numbers on the table uh frankly that that you can stand behind and won't get you fired three years from now when people realize you're just not good at it and you overpaid for something um but back to that timeline you know even big companies that have billions of dollars uh, of revenue the m a cycle is a high hyper-fast, frenetic pace uh, animal. And having a forecasting process that knows, anticipates what influencing variables it's going to be given, has a good UI to receive them, and can then apply those to data that's already in the system and ready to be modeled, uh, that's super important. And that's where it gets into the technical details of, are you buying a DST-based fund If so, you know, get get TA information uh, and model it in at a high level. They're going to tell you what the flows are by quarter. You know, model it into the UI. But in your due diligence, you should be using real TA data in due diligence. And you should be tying it back to the assumptions that they gave you in the deck. Um, That's another key thing about not screwing up M and X. If they tell you something, write it down. Put it in a system. They said they're, they're going to do X in growth they're going to do why in expense cutting right all you guys do that all all you girls and and guys do that but have a system where you're recording it and then when you're in due diligence get the ta data and say wait wait wait, this doesn't time out i'm not saying hey go go try and find a reason to retrade them but having a system not a spreadsheet is is very important to being able to consistently and repeat in a repeatable fashion take input that are already known what you're going to receive. Or you know, you know, the vast majority of what you're going to receive. Model them against good data that's already available so that the projections can come out in a readily available fashion, in a timely fashion. And then spend all your time on the output, not spend all your time on the data collection and coordination of the process and maintenance of what's essentially a massive software program in macros and a spreadsheet.
2: Yeah. One other thing I'd add, right, you know, as a strategy consultant, I've spent, you know, the majority of my due diligences on, you know, transactions that never ultimately went through, right? If you think about heads of corporate development, they're screening hundreds of potential transactions a year. Um, So one other successful element of a due diligence is just understand what you really want to do and understand what is just a screen and how do you move quickly through it? Um, Because there's many, many, many firms that are out there on the market and shopping themselves. Um, and, and trying to get a, you know, a quick understanding of, you know, how do these firms fit into our plan, and, you know, do these numbers actually add value, and being able to quickly pass on those that, you know, clearly aren't accretive it is helpful, because there's plenty of firms that kind of get shiny object syndrome, and do uh, a ton of due diligence, and work and digging heavily, and then realize maybe it's not, not the right fit, and they spent a, a lot of Kind of human capital time and expense on on doing that diligence. So being able to have you know, even good screening processes up front also help um, determine where you really want to dig in and add value and, and, and go through the full diligence process and where it might not make as much sense.
3: Uh, great, great point. Um, 100% agree with with all, all of that that you said. And one thing that just like you get rosy uh, projections in a pitch deck Uh, I've heard twice this said in the last uh, four weeks, everything is for sale right now. Everything. (laughs) So, you know, just because somebody sends you a pitch deck, uh, don't think they're the only people for sale. Basically, every large uh, institution is in some way for sale to a larger one or one of similar size. And what that translates to is exactly what you said, Tyler whereby five years ago, we may have looked at two or three companies a year at Delta Data. We're looking at 20. We're getting pitch decks every week. And it's not a flood of worthless information, but you have to be able to quickly uh, bring to the surface what's really intriguing and can add value and quickly screen out, as you pointed out, uh, what is, is likely not as interesting and not miss the acquisition you really should have done. Out of that 20, you can't let accidentally slip by because you weren't paying attention, the one that could transform your business. So you have to look at all 20 and finding that repeatable process that's mainly based on quantitative, quantitatively based fact uh, to screen them in and do more due diligence or screen them out and move on is a is a is a key capability you got to have.
1: We do have one other question and I think this kind of summarizes and maybe a good kind of way to roll this up to the end. Um, you know, we talked through workforce changes, upgrades in technology, M&A activity. What are the biggest strategic decisions that you see firms are going to have to make in the next 5 years based on where we are today in the market?
3: Tyler, I'll let you take that first
2: yeah yeah i mean a lot of them overlap with uh some of the ones that i was laying out earlier i think the the big strategic decisions are right ultimately um do you want to be a fully at scale global manager right so there's a lot of firms that are rushing into the trillion club and do you want to use A to to consolidate because a lot of these big investments that firms are going to need to make uh, in order to remain competitive are um are fixed dollar investments and there's there's benefits to scale there. So that's one big question. Um, I do think what the the future of the the working model is going to be kind of creeping up on people's lists as as the longer we stay in this type of environment. So you know thinking about that that real estate footprint, thinking about how do you kind of manage your human capital is, is going to be a big one. Um, and um I think the global piece is, is kind of increasingly becoming bigger as we move into more of a regionalized world. Uh, right? I think you know, moving from 1990 to maybe 2010, there was kind of an ongoing push towards globalization. And I think we've pivoted and started to head in a different direction at this point. So thinking about how firms can truly be global and if firms really want to do that is going to be a big question that's going to be a substantive decision as well.
3: Uh yeah, so I, I don't think anybody asked me uh my thoughts on globalization, so I'll leave that out, even though I have worked in three other countries. Um I will say from a technical point of view and from somebody making decisions in this in this drastically changing environment, change is here, change is happening right now and it's big change, it's not minor change. So my expectation as somebody trying to make decisions in this changing environment is a group of business processes, data, and people who can rapidly provide what alternatives we have, what the implications of the decision path we take will be, uh, and what is likely the best outcome um, if we choose a path, or what is likely the outcome if we choose one path over another. So when I look at a uh, counterparty to me in the asset management industry, uh, I, I think they're asking the question right now. If we cut our global real estate footprint by 12% in year one, 8% in year two, 5% in year three, and 5% in year four, and we invest in technology at a rate 7% higher over those three or four years, um, what is the impact to our EBITDA? And then secondly, if we do this acquisition to try and get to that trillion dollar club, and these are the three firms we're gonna go after based on what we know, what does the flow look like? I'm expecting that in the next week or two. Um, this is where manual uh, processes, ultra complex spreadsheets that essentially need handlers to, to, to even open them up on a computer, uh, start to really show um, their age from a uh, capability perspective, and I'm not in any way inferring our software can do all that, but I am inferring that the core modeling, the core forecasting is something you need software to hold those forecasts, so the next time, which may be next week, you're asked to reforecast, you're not starting from square one, you're asking, well, what input is changing that you want to reforecast? Okay, we think sales are going to be flat after November all right, um, that's an, a single input along with 23 others that are going to stay stable uh, into a forecast that here, here's the new one based on that, and here's what its name is, and here's its ID, and if you want to use that, now we can push that downstream to SAP or push that up to the M&A team, but that core thing, where are the models stored, What is the workflow system whereby people can log in and add the influences of sales, the influences of macroeconomic activity if they're an economist, and the influence of expenses if they're in distribution? Um, Those assumptions need to be captured somewhere. Uh, That cannot be a full cost. Every single time you pick it up from soup to nuts, your, your expense should be a fraction of the first time you do it. To do it the second time, you should be just modifying the variable, not starting over. So what, what, what I would say is in this volatile market, expect more questions. Expect more questions that require serious work to answer. And the last thing you want to do is every time you pick up your forecast, it takes specialized people, specialized data collection, and um, a a bit of quality assurance just to make sure that that hand-stitched-together process didn't hit a bump in the road.
0: You've been listening to Nixa Talk. Nixa is a trade association supporting all types of professionals within the asset management community. For information on how your firm can become a member, visit nixa.org slash membership. Subscribe to Nixa Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And let us know your thoughts by reviewing our podcast on iTunes and connecting with us on Twitter at Nixa News. For over 50 years, Nixa has been connecting the people of the asset management industry to share best practices. Join the conversation today at Nixa.org.